This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 250, A Conversation with Scott Lobdell. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. This is episode 250, A Conversation with Scott Lobdell. I am your host, Adam Chapman. Thanks for joining us for this special uh, 250th episode. Um, this episode is the uh, first time in a while we've actually uh, been able to uh, talk to someone from the comic book industry. The last time was, I think, episode 176 with uh, artist Nick Patara from Manhattan Projects. This time around, we've got Scott Lobdell, writer of among many, many things in his storied career, Uncanny X-Men, X-Men, Generation X, uh, the Hardy Boys original graphic novels in the mid-2000s, as well as recently Red Hood and the uh, Outlaws, as well as Teen Titans and Superman, um, as well as Superboy, uh, additionally. So uh, we're going to jump in in just a second, just some housekeeping. If you want to email us, you can do so at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, and also subscribe to us on iTunes as well. Uh, this episode, we're going to just jump right in, actually in the middle of a... Um, we asked kind of a... We got him to start with an anecdote um, about writing um the upcoming red hood and arsenal book uh which is post-convergence uh coming from dc um but uh in the episode you're gonna hear myself talking as well as my co-host paul scores who also is joining us for this episode uh it's about a hour and a half hour and 45 minutes long um just a bit of a conversation about you know things scott's done in the past things that are a little bit more recent talking about his experiences writing the x-men books uh, a little bit of a peek behind the curtain on with some uh, particular anecdotes and like that so um yeah it's it's a very interesting and fun episode we we're very glad and happy to be able to get scott on the show and uh we're very appreciative for his time as well um so uh yeah strap in and enjoy the uh this 250th episode of comic shenanigans with a conversation with scott labdell right before we jump in however i just want to take a moment to uh thank um some people from the marvel masterworks um message board who had submitted ideas for questions uh when solicited and uh, i just want to thank some of the following names i don't actually name check them uh, directly in the episode uh but i did want to make sure i at least gave a th- uh, thank you or a shout out somewhere um so I'm, i want to thank the following users uh shagamu uh sammy murchie or murky i don't know how you pronounce that uh Kay Benya, dr doombot um die thy leather uh tim roll pickering five years later uh, David Ty and Very Crazy Penguin. So thank you very much for um, submitting ideas for questions. And I tried to use a bunch of these questions uh, throughout the conversation. So uh, you'll kind of recognize your question as it comes by. So thanks again. I really appreciate you guys uh, throwing um, your hat into the ring in terms of coming up with good questions for Scott in our conversation. So without further ado, here's Scott. You know, it's funny. I was planning on doing something with Red Hood and the Red Hood and Arsenal book, which is coming out in june and i uh pitched it to someone at dc and they were aghast and they were like well i don't know i don't know about this and uh, and then they said something they said uh well you know you don't want the uh you don't want to have a starfire situation again and i'm like why would i not want to have a starfire situation again i mean i like you know i like when people react to a story and i you know i like the fact that it gets you know people in different camps and it gets readers to look at characters in different ways and so to me for somebody to say i don't want a a starfire situation thinking that's kind of what you want all the time you want you know books to be 
you know, you, you want people to, at the end of the day, talk about the books and talk about what's exciting. And even in this situation when they're like, well, what if you reel it back? And I said, well, I could reel it back. If I reel it back, though, people aren't going to talk about it. If people aren't going to talk about it, they're not going to read it. And if they're not going to read it, then, you know, what am I doing? So, like, why hire me if you, you know, if you're not going to have me do what I do, you know? So, um, but I just think it's, uh, I think it's interesting that they were, you know, I was getting this, like, cautionary tale about, you know, because if you, I remember at the time that Red Hood, to everybody, you know, the internet was like, well, Lobdell has totally ruined his chances all this book and no one will ever read it again. <laughs> and it, that's my voice for everybody on the internet. And, that's um, pretty good. Thanks. And uh, you probably heard him in comic book stores too. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but they, uh, yeah, the sales climbed on issue two. And I was going to say, like, you know, if I was an editor or above at either one of these two companies and an editor didn't come in each month, it, you know, if I didn't pull something in and say, okay, what's going, what's happening this month? And if they didn't, you know, shock me or uh, annoy me or excite me or scare me, I would tell them to go back and talk, talk to the writers and try again tomorrow. It's like, you know, I just look at so many, and, and there are some, there are very good comic books out there. But when I look at, you know, the volume of comic books where things just don't happen. It just is so, uh, it's a head scratcher for me. So, but, so when you get people who are like, oh, let's do this and let's do that. And they're like, no, no, no. So like, I'll give you an example. I was, uh, when I had Clark quit the daily planet and open up the, uh, uh, the website. Oh, with Cat Grant. Uh, yeah, yeah, with Cat Grant. Or actually, she she opened it and then he was kind of lured, lured in. But um, I, there were two major things I wanted to do. Like I wanted uh, Clark to go after the Titans, and the idea was that you know we don't let kids play with guns and we don't let them drink alcohol and we don't let them you know enlist in the army and we don't let them. Uh, do drugs and so you know the notion that there are these kids running around with superpowers using them as they see fit is something that uh, you know if it were in the real world your reaction would be like that's not you know that's not something we could support and so to me I was like well let you know I mean Clark especially in this version where there was no Superboy his feelings would be even greater that you shouldn't be running around together as a group wielding your superpowers as you need them. And somebody was said, well, that makes him a hypocrite. I go, it doesn't make him a hypocrite. It's just, you know, I mean, he of all people knows the importance of power, but the idea is, is it got nixed because people were debating it in the office about whether or not he should or should. And I said, that's the idea. That's what you want. You want people, you know, you want people in the stores to debate it. You want them to, you know, some people think he's a jerk and some people get it. And, you know, and so, you know, you, so that was one of those things that fell by the wayside. And then, cause I couldn't get it through. And then another thing was I wanted him to expose the idea of the suicide squad. And, 
people are like, well, you can't do that because, you know, uh, you know, because then what would we do? I go, well, look, you know, every day in the paper, you know, people are talking about this government conspiracy or that government conspiracy. So, you know, Super, uh, Clark writes an article saying, you know, there's a government program where they strap bombs onto people and, you know, <laughs> send them off to get killed. And he can do that article and everybody can be shocked. And then they can go to the government and say, is this true? And they go, no, it's not true. It didn't happen. So this way it would get it out there and uh, it would get it out there. And it would be something that I think Clark would, you know, as Clark would find himself a guest. But, you know, he's not going to go and disband it as Superman, but he can bring a spotlight on it as Clark. But again, they're, you know, they're feeling as well, you know, then you're going to ruin Suicide Squad. I go, I don't think you ruin it at all. You just you say it's out there, people don't believe it, and you know they're just as clandestine as they ever were. But but to me, it was important for Clark to be breaking these stories. But um, anytime I would pitch a story that you know <laughs> was compelling and would get people talking, it got nixed because it was you know quote unquote controversial. It's too thinking, bad because both those sound really cool ideas. <laughs> I know it's like why write you know why why you know people just again somebody said to me last week they go you know well you don't want to be controversial I go. I'm totally fine with being controversial. I want, you know, I want people to talk about. Yeah, I, I'd rather hate a comic than not care. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'd rather pick up a comic, and if it, even if I don't like it, as long as I feel motivated, it means I care about the characters. If I don't care and I'm feeling indifferent, it means something's wrong with the comic. Like I either want to be really enjoying it and thinking this is amazing, or I want to hate it because that means that I at least care and it's doing something to characters I love. If it's just indifferent, it's just there. It's it's not really a good comic. It's, it's 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 as you said. It's not really doing anything. It's it's just middling. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing is, I uh, I mean, it's frustrating to me sometimes because I read the message boards like other people do. I mean, I don't read them nearly as much as I used to, but you know, I'll, I'll read the criticism and they go, "Well, you know, Scott had Clark uh, start his own website and then he didn't do anything with it." And I want to write and say, "Well, I." tried to do lots of things with it but you know they got shot down so it's uh you know so that becomes frustrating because then people say oh there's another one of you know Lobdell's ideas that you know he threw out and it was didn't go anywhere and it's like you know that brings up that brings up an interesting it brings up an interesting question that you don't really have to answer but i'm just curious is that so you've obviously worked with at marvel and then uh predominantly like with most of your stuff was in the 90s which was a very interesting era for marvel comics and then with all the work that you've done with DC in the New 52 in, in the last few years, what what would you say have kind of been your interactions with editorial and your takeaways from what editorial can both be like on the on the good end and the bad end, both at, at both companies, and what would your interactions and experiences been like? Well, it seems to have changed over the years in the sense that, you know, like, you know, Bob Harris and I had a lot of similar ideas, and when we didn't agree on things we would you know bat them out between each other but we both had a lot of respect for each other so if he felt one way and I felt the other way we would you know sometimes I would convince him sometimes he would convince me but that was the process and you know but now it seems that it it, it seemed that to me that writers and editors were very close and you know you can see some of the better or not better let's say more uh, more high profile successful writers you know like you know scott snyder is a perfect example of someone who you know got along great with uh mike martz and gets along great with mark doyle and uh you see that relationship and the fruits of that relationship um 
with me, I've had editors who will like an idea, but then second guess what they think the editor will say and what they think the publisher will say, and they'll come back and have me, uh, you know, have me toss something out or something because, you know, because there's all this second guessing that goes on. Similarly, you know, there's these things in the old days called make readies where. Uh, when the book was just about, just like, uh, just before it was going to the shops, they would print these uh, books without any covers on them, and they were usually not even, the pages weren't even cut. You had to, like, take scissors and cut them so you'd have the actual comic book. And that is when, uh, like, Mark Grunewald and Tom DeFalco would read the books. Um, they'd sit there and they'd read all the books, and they'd say, okay, well, you know, they'd call me editors, and they'd say, well, this was a good month, and or this was a bad month, and, you know, I really like this character, Electra. I think you should do more with her, and, you know. And that was kind of the process of what people above editors did. Um, now, uh, you know, I'll get a, like, this is kind of a fun story. Um, when uh, we were doing those, I think it was the Zero Issues, where we were doing the origins of some of the characters from five years ago, I was for Teen Titans. I was doing the. Let me see that. Um, yeah, for Teen Titans, I was doing the uh, Red Robin story, and uh, I had written it, and the book was due on the printers at Friday, and I got a call on Wednesday, and they said, uh, "Yeah, we think that maybe this story needs a little more heart, so um, we think the story should really be about." Um, Batman dealing with the fact that Jason has died and now he doesn't know about trusting this new Robin and so it should be about from Batman's I mean it should be Batman dealing with all that and I was like well that's kind of a problem because Batman only shows up on three panels (laughs) in this story and they said well just think about it you can do it and so I thought about it and the next morning I woke up and rewrote the entire story from Batman's point of view. So, and then they lettered it and then the book was uh, sent out on Friday. And it was funny because the, one of the last things in the very last page was something about, you know, how he had entered the, you know, Tim had entered the witness protection program and that Tim Drake wasn't even his real name. And, I didn't know about that because somebody just thought at the last minute that that would be interesting. And so they did that. And again, you know, the shit storm rained down upon me as people, you know, ranted that he, they loved how he even took away Tim Drake's name. So I'm like, okay, you know, there's another, uh, you know, another thing you can get blamed for. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not somebody, I mean, this is fine because it's a year or two later and, you know, we're talking about it in a different context, but it's not like I would ever go online and be like, but that wasn't me, I didn't do it. You know? <laughs> uh, that's interesting, because yeah. I do remember that, and be like, oh, that's an interesting choice. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting yeah, I, to know I mean, that it wasn't even your choice. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I didn't, I, I did you know, uh, what's the word, not to object, but I mean, I could see where they were going, so that's totally fine. So I don't know, so it was... Uh, so, so like I say, the whole process is different, and part of that, I think, has to do with, you know, it used to be you'd have to have a comic book three months, it had to be done three months before it hit the stands. Now, literally, you can get a comic book on the, you can start when the, the last issue goes on sale and be done 
by the time the next issue goes on sale. You know, wow. It's hard, but that's the, you know, it used to be FedEx was a big deal when that happened, but now it's, you know, you know, the old, there's a funny thing in the old days, if I was, uh, if I or any freelancer was late with a story, they would promise it on Tuesday, it will definitely be there on Tuesday, and then on Tuesday morning you call the office and you go, FedEx did not show up, I'm so angry, <laughs> then you'd have all day on Tuesday to finish your story. Um <laughs> Nowadays, with email, you can't really go, well, you know, I don't really have it, you know, because they're just as likely to say, well, send me what you got, and then you're like, uh, yeah, I'm shipping, I'm writing to you from my cell phone, so as soon as I get home, and you can't even do that anymore, because we all have smartphones, so there's no reason, you know, you can't send it, or, you know, or, you know, one thing that I do, I shouldn't say this, but, um, I don't do it anymore, but I used to. Um, that's a good cover, right? Um, yeah. What I would do is, uh, if I had to have something in on Monday or Tuesday, and it was Friday, and they finally were like, oh, Scott, the script is not here, and you said it would be here on Friday. And I go, well, I don't know. Let me check. And then I would check my email, and then I would make a fake header and footer and time date <laughs> and everything and then I would be like oh you should check your spam because I sent this outlook and I would forward it I would fake forward it to the editor <laughs> and then they'd be like oh, oh okay sorry sorry yeah our email system's really screwed up so um, so it takes a lot more you got to be more creative when you're <laughs> that, is, that is amazing <laughs> But you know what? That's the thing is, I mean, for every uh, rewrite that's on the way of the printer that they toss at me, I think I'm entitled to toss back a little, you know, uh, sorry, I don't know what happened to this. That's, that's pretty <laughs> fair. Sweet. Um, let's go back for a minute, because um, we kind of jumped in talking about, like, obviously the current stuff, more likely, but... Um, how did you first kind of start getting into comics? Not so much actually getting into comics, I should say. What was your initial kind of experience with comics as a reader? Like, did you read comics when you were younger, or did you come to it a little bit later? Um, yeah, I was. Uh, I didn't really read comic books. I mean, I was aware of them, but uh, you know, there's the occasional car trip that my parents would, you know, buy some comic books and throw them in the back seat for us to read. Or, you know, when I go to get the haircut with my father, there were, you know old band of comic books and they were fun but it wasn't until I was in the hospital when I was uh, 16 and 17 I had really bad lungs and so I was in intensive care a lot and while I was there uh, for some reason everybody would bring you comic books and I remember I, I want to say it was Marvel what was it? it was Marvel premiere no, it wasn't Marvel Premier, but somebody with more time on their hands will find. Uh, it was the it was um, maybe it's Guardians of the Galaxy, the very first Guardians of the Galaxy issue two or three, I think. And um, I remember reading in the hospital it was, and I was like looking at it, going, "Well, like, wow, somebody has to do this. This is like, you know, they say there's a writer over there and an artist, and and at the time I could draw and I can still draw, but." I can't draw quick enough to uh, 
to actually write it, to draw a comic book. But, um, but so the, so when I first started reading and first really truly aware of comics, I was thinking of it not as like, you know, I'm going to memorize every appearance of the Flash from, you know, 1953 when he, you know, took off his red helmet and <laughs> attached the yellow ears. And it's like, you know, I was never that guy, but I was somebody who was like, wow, this is really, this is such an interesting thing to do. And so, uh, so that's when I started writing found books. And, you know, it's funny because I have a memory of watching Hill uh, Street Blues when I was 16 years old. And it was an amazing show and I was totally uh, uh, roped into it. But I remember watching scenes in the police uh, in, in Captain Ferrillo's office and he would be on one side of the desk and Esther House would be on the other side of the desk and they'd be talking to each other but there was a wall behind uh, Ferrillo and behind Esther House was the glass window into the um, into the bullpen and I was like that is so weird they must wow they must they must have a bunch of cameras there and they just move that wall and then shoot him and they move the other thing and they shoot him and you know and so even then i was like looking yeah at the story and i was totally gripped by the characters but i was also astounded by everything that was going on like the whole process of being roped in by what i was seeing if that makes any sense so Hmm. so i think that um yeah, so for me, I love comic books, and I still love comic books, but, you know, even now, like, people will say, you know, what comic book do you read? And I'm like, I don't know, it's kind of like a magician going to see another magician, you know, you're, you know, everybody else can ooh and ah, but you're looking at it going, hmm, you know, he had that rabbit up his butt the whole time, everybody knew that. <laughs> so it's, uh, so that's a lot of what I feel, it's, it takes a lot for me to fall into comic books nowadays and, and lose myself in them, so. What were some of your, I guess, your favorite characters growing up? Or not growing up, I, I guess once you got into comics, I should say. Uh, well, the Beast was uh, just joining the Avengers when I was around, and that was fun. And uh, he wore an Edward G. Robinson mask to his uh, audition, which, you know, it's kind of funny because uh, my friend Fabian will, uh, often references uh, Ziggy Stardust and comics i'll be like oh you're like ziggy stardust you're crazy like ziggy stardust i'm like ziggy stardust was like 30 years ago and so <laughs> when i see uh i remember like looking at edward g robinson and uh the avengers i'm thinking like <laughs> was it roy or no i mean i think it may have been steve Englehart, but i'm thinking yeah there's a reference that you know <laughs> even at you know 1670 i was like hmm, that's kind of a dated uh Reference. This would be before the internet. You can even go and, you know, I'd have to ask my father who Edward G. Robinson was. <laughs> before there was the internet, there were your parents. And they, they were... That's true. Yeah, I uh, guess it's true. Yeah, and then also another, uh, you know, to me, like like the rest of the world, I fell in love with, you know, Frank Miller's uh, Daredevil, um, and it was awesome, but before that, Daredevil was just like the really funny guy. And I love that about, I mean, I love, you know, his name was Daredevil and he was a Daredevil and it was really fun. And so, uh, you know, eventually he became the super, super, super dark character. But at the time he was the funny He was still one. a swashbuckler at the time, right? Yeah. 
and so I loved uh, I always loved that about him so he was another one of my favorite characters in Hellcat I liked her and yeah I think they were my favorites growing up oh and also uh, Legion of Superheroes which is the one book that I would uh, like to write before I die but uh, have you have I you... have any plans on that um, what's that I was gonna say, have you, have you, uh, like, uh, if that's kind of like, like one of the ones for you that you really want to do? Have you, have you pitched a lot of Legion of Superhero stories before? No, but I mean, you know, ever since uh, I mean, I'll, I think I mentioned it once to Dan, and Dan is Dan just sat back and said, "Everybody wants to do Legion of Superheroes. Everybody, everybody that comes in here every day, the Legion of Superheroes." Like, okay, so, um, so I'll have to create a uh, knockoff someday. <laughs> well, I'll, 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 I'll have to I'll look do, forward to the, the knockoff legion what is it Mark Mark Miller Mark Millar what is, mm, yeah. is, is it Mark Millar Mark Millar yeah who does like you know the flash and calls it MPH and or miles per hour and, right I mean that's him right yeah I think it was him yeah so that's what I should do I should just uh... I mean eventually everyone does a knockoff of everyone right I mean that's why I mean, we have the Squadron Supreme. Yeah, we've gotten to that point where you know, it is a... Uh... Um, now, how did you f- first kind of get into the industry itself? So, like, as you said, you started kind of getting into comics when you were 16 years old. How did you end up first kind of getting into comics as a p- potential profession? Well, I went to college where I wanted to be a psychologist. And about two years in, I was like everybody has a problem and I don't want to listen to everybody's problems forever so I thought that was a bad attitude for a psychologist to have so you know to me like the psycho- to me psychology is like the study of uh, well it's kind of like conflict resolution you know you identify the problem and then you solve it and then when I was in college I was thinking well you know that's kind of what comic books are a comic book is just a comic book is just conflict re- resolution you you know present the problem and the hero has to figure out a way to fix it and so that's when I decided that I wanted to start writing comic books and it's funny because at the time I at the time people said it was crazy because I was like yeah I'm going to write comic books and I'm going to write movies and I'm going to write TV and they're like well how, where would you make that leap and so um, you know now it's not even a leap at all but back then it was considered uh, bizarre and I was um, yes yeah, so I decided that I uh, wanted to use um, you know comic books as a way to uh, do that conflict resolution stuff and so I uh, I was working for the college newspaper I was interviewing people like Chuck Scarborough who is our local newspaper uh, our local newscaster in New York and I called up Isaac Asimov, and at the time he picked up his phone. He's like, oh, oh. I was like, yeah, can I interview you? He's like, oh, I don't see why not. Sure, hold on a second. Um, and so I was like, hmm. So I interviewed Al Milgram, who was the artist, on, ironically enough, on that uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. And so I was like, can I interview about you about how comic books are done? He said, sure. So I went down and I interviewed him and then he said, oh, let me give you a few examples of how plots are written, plots and scripts. And I said, okay, so I took him home and then about, you know, two weeks later when the article came back, 
I was uh, went down and I said, uh, "Hey, I'm in town and I wanted to give you a copy of the newspaper." He's like, "Oh, thanks." And again, this was before email and everything, when you know. And so I, um, I really wasn't in town. I was in town only to give him that, <laughs> and only to give him three other uh, three plots that I had broken down, and said, "So is this kind of how it's done?" And, so we talked, and then, you know, the next month I just happened to be in town again, which <laughs> I was didn't happen to be in town. And uh, so this went on for a while, and he would give me tips and pointers, and then eventually he stopped coming out, and he would send his assistant, Anne Nocenti, out. And so I bonded with Anne Nocenti, and then, you know, as most assistant editors do, they like to uh, pontificate because, you know, certainly their bosses aren't going to listen to him, so someone has to listen to him, so they would talk to me, and then eventually uh, Anne got a job as an editor, and so that meant Al had a new assistant editor, and Anne had a new assistant editor, and then that gave me uh, two other people to bond with, so then before you know it, I was pitching to uh, four different people instead, and blah, 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 so it was, uh, you know, it was kind of a harrowing experience, because at the time I didn't have a car, so I'd have to take the bus from Marlboro into Poughkeepsie, and then the train from Poughkeepsie into New York, which was two hours, and then I had no money, so I had to walk down to Marvel, and sometimes I would have just enough to, you know, have a candy, enough for a candy bar and a chocolate milk, you know, so it's like, okay, that's a good day, and so I'd walk all those blocks, and I'd stop, and sometimes an editor would come out and talk to me and sometimes they wouldn't. So, uh, but then I would leave and walk back up to the train station. Take train. So like six hours of, uh, you know, six hours just to get, you know, a few minutes of face time. And it's funny because, you know, when I eventually, uh, started writing full time and I did a few issues of alpha flight and then, I wound up getting the X-Men kind of uh, without much preamble. And, you know, I'd read it and people would be like, oh, you know, Lobdell is like, you know, an overnight sensation and da-da-da, and he doesn't work for it, and where the hell did he come from? And I'm like, you know, I did spend about three years, <laughs> twice a month, you know, on these six-hour journeys into the city where it was quite, uh, quite humiliating sometimes when, you know, you're hoping that, oh, every every time you, my brother used to laugh because I, I write a story and I go, hey, I'm going to take it and this is going to sell. And he goes, Scott, you always think your stories are going to sell and they never sell. So why do you think your stories are going to sell? And I said, well, I think a better question is, is why would I take a story in that I didn't think was going to sell? Like, I'm certainly not going to go like, oh my God, I got this great story. It's not going to sell. I can't wait to, for everybody to not read it. You know, so it was, uh, you know, so it was, um, so there's a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff that goes into it. And again, you know, you know like I, uh, you know, like you and I, and I, I guess you two and I rather, are having this conversation and you get a glimpse of, you know, the thought processes and the decisions that get made. And, you know, and it's just funny because, like, you know, I read on the internet about, like, uh, oh, he's a hack, and he just craps this stuff out, and I'm thinking, 
you know, I'm so not a hack. I'm so happy. I probably overthink everything way, way, way too much. But but it's funny because, you know, there's the reality and then there's the reality of what, you know, the reality that people have created for themselves. And, you know, this whole, like, uh, you know, I read all these tweets and, nah. and again, I don't read them anymore. I'm just talking about how when I was mm-hmm. reading them because when I first got on, you know, when I got back to, well, you still there? Yep. Okay. You know, when I first got back to the internet, when I first got back to comic books, there really hadn't been an internet when I left. So suddenly I was like, you know, uh, exposed to this uh, kind of really, uh, I don't want to say vile, but let's say vile. Um, (laughs) You know, nature people. It's like, you know, like, I'll say this. When I was younger, we would sit around the comic book store. If we didn't like something that John did or Frank Miller did we'd be like well yeah I don't know I didn't like his Fantastic Four that much but we wouldn't be like you know John Byrne eats dicks and he's drop dead because he's such a fat fuck you know it's like <laughs> but you see this all the time and it's like oh my god people you know where like when did we when did we become that it's so bizarre but there's no accountability uh, people can just rant and say what they want and, and, and be safe and not be held accountable to being a, a big jerk face. Well, what I find interesting, though, is, like, if you think of, like, who's the most famous person who pretended to be somebody else so he could say what he wanted? And that was Cyrano de Bergerac so that he could, you know, mm. woo Roxanne, Roxanne by, you know, being sweet and loving and caring and kind and uh, generous and wonderful and supportive and you know, all those things, and it's like, okay, well, you know, if that's our example of, you know, what anonymity allows you, like, where is that on the internet? Where is, you know, why doesn't that, you know, why doesn't the internet speak to that part of us, you know? So, I mean, I guess another example would be Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. Just more, but even he was, you know, tried to hide his ugliness in order to do something beautiful, and, you know, but nobody, uh, I don't know, the, maybe there's a alternate internet that we're not aware of, but, you know. Uh, I hope maybe, there is now. Maybe waiting to happen. A very positive place. Um, now, moving on, I, I had I mean, a question. Like, why, why not? Pardon me? No, sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to ask a question about your, um, your kind of your scripts. I mean... Uh, when you first kind of got into the industry, were you doing Marvel Method, or were you developing more of a um, like? Obviously, full script is more prevalent now. How, what is your script style like, and how has that changed over the course of your career? Well, I most always write plot and then script, and then I also like what I do now. To be honest, is that uh, I write full scripts because they ask me to but most of the time I just write a really I write the plot the way I want it to and then I just write like really crappy dialogue and then I know that when it comes time to put out the book I'll sit down and rewrite the whole thing like before it gets lettered so I just uh, I prefer that because you know I, uh, you know, it's funny. Oh, what was it? Oh, let me see. What was it? I can't remember. Um, sometimes I write uh, fake dialogue just to, you know, 
get it on paper. And one time uh, I had a script by, I had a script for Teen Titans and forget what it was. It was something like, you know, uh, it was something like Bunker saying like, uh, you know, you know, my God, look at the balls on that guy or something. And it got lettered and they came to me and they said, Scott, uh, Bunker cannot say, uh, I know he can't say that. I would. It's not was. It's never intended for him to say that. Um, and so it's pretty. Uh, so sometimes you get in trouble. But then it's funny. Just this last time, uh, you know, in Tamar Tamaranian, they speak a different language than the people on Earth, and it's been established that they kind of have like their own language and their own font, and. So in the script that I just wrote for 40, Commander is wounded and Corey goes to save her and she's holding her in her arms and Commander says something in uh, Tamaranian. So I wrote Tamaranian here as an indication that I was going to do that. And then when I looked at the pages, she's looking up at uh, Coriander and like really sad. She's saying, Tamaranian here. <laughs> so I had to tell the editor that that was not my intent. Um, but you really have to read these comic books because, uh, you know, sometimes characters, uh, you know, sometimes balloons go to different characters. And, and for everything that you guys catch eventually, and there is stuff that shows up, there's a lot of stuff that, like, at the very last second, you're like, oh my God, this, you know, Aunt May is shouting, I'm going to kill you when it's supposed to be, you know. Sam man supposed to be shouting at you like, oh, that much hasn't changed. Um, I have a question. Um, we have some questions from uh, the Marvel Masterworks uh, message board, and I'm just going to f- fire a few of those in here. Um, one of the questions was, uh, what, what do you think were some of your uh, the highlights of your highlights and lowlights of your kind of your your career at writing the X Men in the '90s? I think that that's a great dramatic pause. Yeah, I'm trying to. I think I'm trying, I mean, it's hard to, you know, when you ask me what the highlights are, it's like, you know, it's hard to uh, answer the question without it sounding like you uh, have a higher opinion of yourself than you should. Um, <laughs> so, but I would say that I think that for me, in the first few, uh, when I first got on the X-Men, I was, uh, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of dangling plot threads that uh, needed to be, uh, addressed sort of and so I would do things like to me like right up front I thought there were way too many X-Men around and so I wanted to get rid of Forge who really uh, I don't know what he was doing out in the garage but apparently it was very important so I um, was like okay let's get rid of uh, Forge and then uh, I was thinking okay he should probably say to Aurora are we going to do this or not and she says no and he leaves, and so uh, as soon as I did that, suddenly there was like this huge, uh, you know, bunch of letters coming in saying, you know, like she, they were my favorite couple. I'm like, how are they your favorite couple? They like said five words to each other in the last six years, as near as I was able to tell. But so you know, so there's you know, plot threads and stuff like that that were being dealt with. But then at some point, you know, and I kind of sat back and let Fabian. Do the first few crossovers like Extinction Agenda, and uh, and I was just kind of like watching, and I think it was, I kind of at some point made a decision that I was going to take things away and re- replace them with something else. Like I wasn't going to do a Sentinel story because they'd been done a hundred times, so I would do 
but I do a, wasn't going to do a brother of evil mutant story because it'd been done a hundred times. So I was going to do the uh, acolytes, and you know, I felt that they just needed to, you know, you couldn't just keep going back to that same well over and over and over. And so, uh, I would like to think that one of the things I tried to do was to move the characters and the books, you know, and the villains forward. I, one of the things that I liked, and again, no one would notice it, and I'm sure you guys didn't notice, and I'm sure no one else but me noticed, but, you know, one of the things that I never ever did was I never opened up on a dream sequence, and I never opened up in the holographic danger room. And I did that because there were other writers, either before me or contemporary, that would do that. And it'd always be like, oh, you know, uh, Kitty Pride is making herself breakfast and she's really happy. And oh my God, Sabretooth jumped out of the, her cereal bowl and gutted her. And now she's bleeding to death and she's dead. And, you know, Sabretooth sat down and he's eating her cereal. And then you turn the panel and it's like, oh, no, it was just a dream. <laughs> it was a holographic thing. And I was like, oof, what a cheap, you know. And so I always made sure that I didn't uh, do that. And I, I also don't think I ever brought anybody back from the dead that I can think of, which, again, I think is a, you know, a plus. Um, mm. So I think lowlights were... Uh, I don't know the lowlights showed in the sense that, like, I would do things that I didn't want to do, and I'd get in these big fights about them. Like, I didn't want Sabretooth to join the uh, X-Men. And they said, well, but then Professor X will eventually realize that he was wrong, he can't help everybody. And I'm like, yeah, but Professor X isn't wrong, so, you know, why do you want to write a story about Professor X being wrong? Um, so... Uh, I didn't want uh, the 325th issue, I think it was, to be about uh, Storm ripping out Marrow's heart. And they were like, oh, no, no, look, it's like 100 issues since, uh, you know, Storm and Callisto and da-da-da. And I'm like, so in 100 issues, Storm's life lesson has been sometimes you have to rip out somebody's heart you know so it's like, <laughs> so I, I agonized and I did it for like you know I must have written six drafts of that script only because I couldn't figure out a scenario that made that I was comfortable writing um, about it so so I think there were things like that like my low lowlifes you know I also had a, a huge fight with Mark Wade about uh, Onslaught and uh, you know, the idea was we, we decided that Onslaught was going to be the result of Xavier uh, when he turned off Magneto's mind. He didn't turn it off. He took it inside of his own. And so it was like the battle between the two and, you know, Magneto corrupting Xavier's mind. And that's what was the creation of Onslaught. And um, Mark thought that uh, it would be great if part of... Xavier's damped down uh, emotions had to do with uh, the fact that he lusted after Gene in issue three of X-Men, where, you know, Professor X sees Gene, he's like, oh, if only I was not in this wheelchair, we would be together. And, but unfortunately, since that time, I mean, Stan wrote it and then promptly never mentioned it again because he realized it was creepy, but <laughs> later on, you know, uh, when Chris 
retroed it so that uh, retconned it so that uh, Jean started going to Professor X. She was like his first student, and she was sixteen or she was twelve when she got there, and then she was sixteen when it happened. And both, and I was like saying, look, you know, you can't have Professor X be lusting after Jean, and you know, because that means he's a pedophile, and Professor X isn't a pedophile. And um, Mark was like, no, but he repressed it. And I go, okay, so he's a repressed pedophile. That's still not, you know, like, you know, the fact that he, you know, he just didn't lust after Gene. It didn't happen. So we would get in these huge, huge fights about it. And um, and that was a low point. So, so there, you know, but those are things that all happen, you know, behind the camera. And, you know, I can't, you know, there's probably a story or two that I would have done differently, but. Fair enough. Uh, actually, a question about Onslaught. Um, when the Onslaught was first being teased right after Age of Apocalypse ended, did you have a sense of who Onslaught was at that point, or were you kind of putting out seeds but didn't hadn't quite figured out who the who that was really going to be yet? Yeah. No. Um, what happened was it was after the uh, Age of Apocalypse uh, thing, and we all were sitting around uh, at a conference, and it was. Me and Warren Ellis and I think uh, Peter Davey was there and I think Mark was even still there at the time. But we're all sitting around. And we said, if you could do one story, what story would you write? And Warren's like, it will, I would write. Uh, I want to write a story, but you never let me do it. I'm like, well, what is it? And he's like, I want to have them all sitting around a pub and just getting drunk. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, I'll do that. That sounds like it's fun. So then uh, they said to me what do you want? And I said, I want to do a story where the X-Men are all sitting around and they hear this whistle and it's a <laughs> and they look up and bam, oh, something hits the ground. It skids like 150 yards and they all run up and it's Juggernaut. He's just beat to shit. And he looks up at him and he says one word. He says, onslaught and passes out. And they're like, wow, <laughs> that's cool. Like, who's onslaught? I don't know, I just love the word I love the idea that somebody can beat up uh, Juggernaut and I think that's so awesome and so I did that issue and about two or three weeks later Ralph Macchio went to Bob Harris and said um, yeah you can't have somebody uh, beat up Juggernaut and not say who he is so Bob came to me and said um, you have to explain who Juggernaut is and I go, mm, I mean who Onslaught is I go, nah. he said, I don't, you know, I, don't know who, I don't know who he is and I don't really have any interest in, in him and finding out who he is because, you know, someday, but I'm just not interested. And so a few months went by and they decided that they had to, uh, that they were going to do Heroes Reborn and Jim and Rob were going to take the characters and, you know, we all know what happened. And so uh, they said, um, we were all sitting around, we were going, well, who can uh, destroy the entire uh, universe or, or take a bunch of characters and put them in a whole separate universe? And we're like, well, you know, not, we can't do Apocalypse, and Doctor Doom doesn't have that kind of, you know, and Kingpin's out, so uh, who could do that? And you know, I now like, I wish it was Kingpin's <laughs> so bad. Right? Well, you know, it may be eventually. Um, and so uh, they said, um, oh, so I was like, you know who could do it? Onslaught could do it. And they're like, what do you mean Onslaught? And I go, well, he beat up Juggernaut. He's got to be pretty, you know big and so they're like well why would why would onslaught though take uh like leave the x-men behind and take all the other characters 
I said, well, maybe it's something to do with, you know, Xavier, and and so we started talking. And I say, we, I'm pretty sure it was me and Wade and uh, Bob Harris, and we just got talking, and that's when we realized that, okay, uh, Magneto, I mean, the Onslaught should have this incredible power, and that power is the unlimited power of one's mind, and so that meant, you know, Xavier was part of it, and then it was, you know, creating a whole other electromagnetic uh, planet reality, so it's like, oh, Magneto, okay, so Xavier Magneto, okay, so if they were there, when did that happen? Oh, it happened when uh, Magneto, when Xavier turned off his mind, he didn't turn it off, he took it inside and they back her up, and so you start to put all those pieces together, and this is the best part, is six months after I introduced uh, Juggernaut, when you think about it, if Onslaught is all of Xavier's repressed anger and frustration in life, who's the very first person that he would have taken that rage out on but his stepbrother, Juggernaut? So it just, you know, what started out as uh, as this idea of, like, slapping Juggernaut around, eventually became, oh, yeah, well, Onslaught, sure. So it all became one big story, making it seem like it was all one big master plan. So That's amazing. Wow. That's a great story. I'm, I'm a huge fan, Scott, of uh, the whole Onslaught saga. That's the one story that sucked me into comics from the get-go. I still think of it as one of the best put together events too and how it was structured with the the phases and the impacts and everything um and i guess that's a sidebar question i know when you might guys make is it easier as a writer to make a new hero or to make a compelling villain for the heroes to fight i mean i think you just want you know like you kind of want every character to be as uh, you know like i hate to say it, there's that old saying a hero is only as interesting as their villain you know like like if you look at die hard you know would Bruce Willis have been as amazing in that part if Alan Rickman wasn't in that part, you know? And so, but I think if you, like I always thought it would be really interesting to, to reshoot Die Hard, but shoot it from the point of view of a terrorist who's been planning for months, you know, for this master thing, and then he gets there and this idiot cop from New York is planning his whole plan. Um, but I think that when you look at something like that, you, you look at the fact that both those characters are really, uh, really fleshed out. And I don't know, like, I'll be honest, like, I, uh, when I was going to do, um, what's his face? Uh, what is his name? Oh, uh, Har- Harvest from uh, Teen Titans. The idea behind Harvest and Teen Titans were, you know, it was supposed to be a completely different character in the sense that he was going to be human, like Tim was human, and his whole thing was, uh, he was coming from the end of time and trying to deal with the metahuman situation, whereas Tim was, at the beginning of time, essentially taking that first generation of new metahumans and giving them a purpose, and so the two of them are going to, it's almost like uh, the difference, it's going to be kind of a different uh, dynamic than Charles and Eric in the sense that both of these guys are humans fighting for the fate of metahumans when in a way they didn't have any horse in the race and that's what made them so compelling as enemies to each other from different sides of time 
which sounds kind of interesting, right? Um, but when Harvest was drawn, I kind of lost control of that storyline, and they said, oh, no, he should be powerful, and he should be... Do-. And so they drew this, like, skeletal guy with bat wings, and, and it was like, okay, well, then that is a whole different character, because it's not that, you know. That's somebody who's a metahuman. That's not what I had planned. And so, um, so I don't know if I answered your question, but like, you know, but like to me, Bunker is a really fun, interesting character. But I didn't write him uh, with the assumption that, I mean, to me, he was just going to be uh, a character who you knew that. Uh, I always said that, like, he's the type of guy that if uh, you're fighting Doctor Doom, he's the one guy in the group that'd be like, well, you know, I kind of kind of feel bad for doom i see what he's you know i mean i know he's killing all these people but i see where he's coming from you know it's like he was going to be the, the character that uh, just had a different perspective tried to see everybody as people and what they needed um but i never thought of a, 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 an opposite character to him so i don't know i don't know yeah. if that answered your question but no definitely interesting um question um actually kind of in and around when onslaught was happening uh you had introduced the character who i guess uh joseph was your original concept for joseph that he really was magneto or does or were you always kind of planning in the back of your head that you would bring back like the real magneto at a different time which ended up being at the trial of gambit or is it uh, i was not i my plan was always to make him proteus um, because Proteus could create, you know, little pockets of reality. And in a way, it was, uh, you know, to me, Joseph was about the story of, you know, the conflict of nature versus nurture. If you started, you know, uh, once, if you started Eric off with a clean slate, would he still become Magneto? And the trick behind that was that it was the exact same question behind Proteus. If you had, uh, you know, given the kid a chance instead of, you know, Moira locking him up in the tower, which I understand she had to, but, you know, if he had had a chance, would he had, would he have become a force for good or for a force for evil? Um, but having said that, because uh, to me, like, I could, to me, I felt I could get away with that story because the reveal that he was Proteus would have tracked the same way Joseph's story tracked, but as Proteus. Um, but I never had any intention of uh, bringing Magneto back in 350. Like, I know my name is on that uh, story, but I really didn't have anything to... I think I wrote the first three pages, and then uh, they brought in Steve and Joe, I think, or something, and they took it in a whole different direction. And even I remember reading it going like, so they're mad at Gambit, so they're going to leave him out in the... Arctic tundra. Okay, so does that mean you're killing him? I think you leave him out in the. But um, maybe I guess he could create snowballs and throw them, and that would give off heat. I don't know. I don't know what their plan was, but um, but so no, that was never my intent to bring that. May need that. So that's really interesting. I, I again, it's 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 interesting to hear from a creator about the inner kind of goings-on because as a, as a fan we don't we don't I, I, these days i guess we have more of an idea because um it feels like with the internet that there's a little bit more discussion but especially like going back like we really don't have any idea of what was really going on behind the scenes so it's really interesting to hear you say that because like 
I remember reading that issue. I remember seeing that reveal, and I always kind of wondered. So it's interesting that you know how much rewriting was actually going on, and how much, as you said, you didn't really actually end up having a lot of involvement, even though your name is on the issue. Well, you know, it's also um, you know, it's funny if you look, like if you pulled up, uh, like I was, I I was really trying very hard towards the end to make the X Men. Uh, you know, different, I kept trying to, like, pull in different uh, team members and blah, blah, and, like, I would say maybe the second I left, you know, Kitty, Kurt, and Colossus came running back, and they were the team, and it was like, you know, it was just, there was just always, and, and uh, you know, suddenly Cyclops, um, Dark Phoenix's uh, silhouette appeared in the driveway, and I was like, I remember, like, I wasn't reading it, but I was looking at it, and I was just thinking, oh, you know, like, why do we always 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 have to go backwards you know like why so but it was uh so but if you look at it like from you know you could if you read the tea leaves you can see where you know i was really trying to use different characters bring different people and there was just this constant you know push towards going backwards so along those lines then i mean uh when you I guess we're writing Operation Zero Tolerance, right? I guess that would have been right near the end of your run on X-Men. Um, obviously, you were bringing in like Cecilia Reyes as a character. Um, okay. the, the character, I guess, would eventually be called Maggot, but that wasn't originally your plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I, showing new blood kind of coming well, into Maggot, the book. Maggot, yeah, yeah, Maggot had been there long, long before that, but, you know, but I was also thinking I was uh, going to, um, what's the word, uh, yeah, like Mara had, uh, you know, Mara had um, come back and, you know, I was playing around with her and uh, Sabra and uh, what's the name? Um, yeah, but yeah, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of new characters that were, uh, I was hoping would. Uh, For a while, I guess, Mara did kind of feel like the new Wolverine. Um, yeah, and the first thing they did was make her pretty. I'm like, oh. That always bugged me too, actually. <laughs> Because it made her I mean, like, I just looked at it, just looked at it from a distance, and you know, I was. Tr- I mean, I, you know, you do have to let go of things after you leave. But like, I remember, uh, I read a whole issue of uh, Juggernaut and how he was the most powerful mutant ever, and blah blah blah. I sent a, uh, I think I sent a fax because this was before texting, and it's just like. Just so you guys know, uh, Juggernaut is a mutant, and so, uh, you know, they're like, oh, <laughs> sorry, that's weird. Um, I don't know if he's a mutant now, but he wasn't a mutant then, but so. Uh, along the lines of uh, the idea of bringing in new blood, um, this is another question from the, the, the forums, uh, the idea that you, what was behind the, the reasoning to bring Cannonball kind of away from X-Force, graduating him to the X-Men, was that an editorial idea was that more of your idea and how did you kind of play with the character and how interesting was that to have him go from being you know the seasoned field leader of the new mutants and then later the x-force to now being kind of the rookie x-man um i that was totally my idea and i just felt that like you know like to me i there were times when like the book started to become the same book it seemed to me like you know i always felt that the X-Men should be the X-Men, Excalibur should be Excalibur, X-Force should be the X-Force, X-Factor should be X-Factor, you know, and they should have, have their own, own uh, but 
it seemed to me that as time went on, people tried to make the books more like the other books, each other. And so I felt that, you know, X-Force should feel like, you know, the Bush, not the Bush Leagues, but the, uh, yeah, maybe kind of the Bush Leagues, like not, not in a bad way. I mean, I guess Bush League sounds like it's a bad thing, but um, they should be the minor leagues. They should be, you know, uh, and then when you're at the Akrians, and so the idea was to take uh, um, Sam, who was the guy who was usually giving the orders, and suddenly put him in a room with, you know, Wolverine, uh, Scott, and Storm, and this is not a guy who's going to be giving orders and, you know, or probably even lightening up very much, you know. And so I felt that that was, a, you know, I was always looking for new dynamics because, you know, what's funny is um, I remember we were sitting around at uh, one of the panels, uh, one of the panels, one of the summits, and they were saying, um, what is the, uh, um, like, what do you think of the relationships, are? what are the relationships of the uh, X-Men? And people were like, well, you know, um, Nightcrawler's like your, your wacky cousin and you know Wolverine's like the grumpy uncle and you know Storm is like your big sister that you can relate to and I was like oh, oh, who wants to read that um, and so to me to me like you know like we were talking about um, uh, we were talking about like getting hooked on your, your version of the you know your version of the group uh, of a book and to me like the most exciting time for the X-Men was when you had, you know, Peter, who uh, would rather be a farmer. You had Storm, who, you know, thought she was a goddess. And you had Nightcrawler just trying to, you know, be friends with everyone and hope they don't care about his, you know, about to look like a demon. You had uh, Wolverine carving his initials in the uh, furniture, you know, like, you knew that any time these characters were on panel, they were all going to come at being an X-Men from a different point of view. Um, and then over the years, they became a family, everybody's a family. And so, to me, uh, you know, I was always looking for new dynamics to break it up so it wasn't, you know, this kind of uh, family stuff. So, um, you know, so uh, I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. Uh, no, it's, it's well. First of all, it's interesting the idea of you know the Bush leagues, the X Force being the Bush leagues, because I think it definitely, especially at that point, and your comment about the idea of sameness and the books starting to feel more and more like each other. If you go back and read a lot of those books, like X Force was now living in the mansion again at the time. Um, it was. It felt like a little like it was losing its sense of identity because it wasn't out on its own anymore. It was based in the same place. So what made it that different? Mm-hmm. Um, a question um, as well would be uh, let's see just with the Age of Apocalypse we mentioned it briefly earlier I mean that was um, I mean Paul had mentioned that Onslaught was a huge thing for him when as his kind of entry point to the X-Men and really getting into comics uh, so too for me was the Age of Apocalypse what was the kind of the, the genesis of that idea like or pitching that to editorial or was it more from editorial like what was that like um i remember uh you know in the old days you'd have to check your uh messages from your phone and you know your home messages from your phone you'd, and i was uh i remember it was raining and I was that the 
I would agree to that to an extent because yeah it was it was it was massive it was uh i i think it's still one of the best put together because it felt like there were so many different pieces but every piece more or less did feel important by the end and again even the way it's laid out with like you know the alpha issue kind of setting things up and then everything going their own direction and then coming all together i don't know if anything's really been that cohesive since yeah well you know it's funny is when we sat down for that meeting we had figured out what everybody had to do, and we just said, okay, um, this is the big story, and this is what you have to accomplish, but it was very uh, limited in scope. It wasn't, you know, like we knew that Scott and uh, Alex had to uh, be part of this kind of uh, death camp thing or whatever it was, but, you know, but it was maybe like a page long, and then the writers were allowed to go off and do what they wanted, 
they just had to make sure that, you know, in telling their story from A to Z, that by Z the characters had to be here doing this. Um, but now it's funny because over the years, like, when I've tried to work with other writers and we go, okay, this is what we do. Like, well, I'm going to write my own story and this is what I need to do. It's like, we're just trying to, you know, create a world to play in and you can do what you want. You just have to, you know. But people have gotten very uh, territorial over the years, which I think is unfortunate. So, but again, you know, I haven't been in a room at, at uh, Marvel in years, mm-hmm. so maybe that's not an accurate representation of what happens. So, I, I think I, a question I wanted to ask about the Age of Apocalypse is that so the the team of X Men that you ended up writing um, again, so that was that purely kind of your choice of who you thought would be the most interesting to work on oh, this yeah. team or is that editorial as well or no it was funny we went out to a, a diner and we were sitting around talking and I was with Joe Madurera and uh, it was me and Joe and Fabian and I think uh, what's his name was there Andy Kubert I guess but um, we talked about what carriage we wanted and I'm like I want uh, the changeling character from the uh, uh, animated TV show. You know, they had a character called Changeling, and I want to have him, but he should be like, he's so insecure that he can't even form a real face. He's just this, like, white pasty, you know, and Fabian's like, um, I'm going to take uh, Quicksilver and Storm. And he was like, uh, an Iceman, like, or whatever he had, and he was like, loading up on what he thought were like the, the, the coolest of the cool characters. And I was like, and I want Sabretooth, and he should have a chain around, um, like, tied to his wrist. And on the other side is Wild Child. And, like, Sabretooth is so crazy, but Wild Child is even more crazy that he, like, will let him loose to attack somebody. But then he, when it's over, he, like, slams him on the floor and throws him over his shoulder. And they're looking at me like, what are you talking about? And Joe Madurai is like, oh, that's so cool. And then start dueling. And then it's like, and uh, remember Blink? And they're like, no, nobody remembers Blink. Scott. From Blink, from Generation X, remember Jack Kelly? In the first, uh, like that first story arc before Generation X. You know, no one remembers Blink. And I'm like, that would be so cool if like Blink is there because we know that this series, man, and everybody's been saying bring back, bring, bring back Blink. So I'm gonna bring her back, but then I'm gonna kill her again at the end of this. And they're like, uh, yeah, okay. Will you take uh, Rogue on your team at least so some of you have a reason to buy this book? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because, that, that yeah, Morph was one of the best parts of that book. And so was having Sabretooth and Wild Child. And it's interesting that that was like, kind of like, I guess, the weird squad. But that was part of what made that book one of the most exciting titles of the Age of Apocalypse because it was so different. It didn't have the yeah, more fun. traditional names. And even uh, Sunfire, it's like, okay, we can use Sunfire, but it's like, I, I said, I want to use Sunfire, and they're like, oh, Sunfire is so boring, and with his goggles, I'm like, no, he had to use the power once, he like burned off his whole face, and um, uh, Joe was like, doodling, and doodle what we all know now is the Age of Block of Sunfire, but like, I mean, uh, Starfire, but right away, he, you know, he just drew the Japanese uh, flag on his forehead and the energy pouring out it's really it's really fun so but no um uh, nobody would have uh, hmm. editorial was certainly not saying use <laughs> use these use blink 
<laughs> no, I guess not. No, that's a good point. Um, speaking of Blink, so obviously you created Generation X. Um, the need for kind of a, a new, I guess a newer version of New Mutants, I guess, like new students. Was that, again, something that you'd always kind of wanted to do, bring it back to a school concept? Or is that, again, something that... Well, they had said uh, they, uh, one weekend, it was like a Friday, and Bob was like, they want to bring back uh, New Mutants and you know, we want you to do it. So think about that over the weekend. So I said, okay. So over the weekend I was thinking, oh, I don't want to do New Mutants because I don't want to do the school and I don't want to do the yellow and blue and I don't want to do, you know, Professor X only because we've seen it all. So Monday came in, I'm like, okay, I want to do New Mutants, but it's not going to be called New Mutants. It's going to be called Generation X. He's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I said, and it's not going to be at Xavier's, it's going to be at Hellfire, uh, I mean, at uh, the White Queen's place. And instead of, like, uh, again, it's my, my need not to use the marquee names. I said, we're not going to use Cable or Cyclops or anything. I'm going to use um, Banshee and White Queen. It's like, you, you want to anchor a book on Banshee and White Queen? I said, yeah, that'd be awesome. And, um, and I only want Jubilee from the other book. And so it was like, so it's just this notion of like, uh, just always, again, like just trying to be different. And so they said, okay, that's fine. We love Generation X. And so that started. And then when uh, we kept trying to figure out who the artist would be, and then I saw um, Chris Pacella stuff on, I think it was Shade. Mm. And I called him up and I was like, Colin, you have to come to Generation X together. It's like, well, Scott, I don't draw like, um, I don't draw like Jim Lee, and I, I will never draw like Jim Lee, so you don't, I, I can't do that. And I said, I don't want to draw like Jim Lee, I want to draw like exactly like Chris Pichella, but just do it for an X-Men book. And so, he said no and no and no for like two or three months, and then his, and he called up and he said, um, okay, I'll do it. And I'm like, oh, what changed your mind? He's like, I told my wife I didn't want to write and uh, draw an X-Men book, and she said, um, pick up the phone. That's actually that's pretty funny considering how much X Men he's done over the years now. Yeah. So he, uh, so he, uh, yeah. So that happened, and then we. Um, it's funny because we sat together in San Diego. It was the first time we met, and Chris had been used to full page, you know, to full scripts, and you know, essentially being pretty much handed things and saying this is whatever. And I was always much more organic than that, so I said. Look, I said, I, I can make, I can invent eight characters or seven characters and hand them off to you. I said, but I don't want to do that because it should be your book. We have to do it together. And so, you know, you get for weeks, he can go, well, send me what you have. I go, I don't have anything. I'm just, you know, I want to, you know, so we sat down and I said, the only thing I know for sure that I want is a character called uh, Chamber. And the idea is, is he blew out his entire chest cavity in his face the first time he used his powers because I'm tired of like the uh, Ken and Barbie um, mutants where you know you look at me like these people have no problems like Jean Grey oh boy I feel bad for Jean Grey um, <laughs> and so uh, it was um, and he was like well that would be um, impossible to draw it's interesting but it's impossible to draw and I scraped it out on a napkin and it's still somewhere you can see on the internet but it's like I said, this is basically what I think. And then I go, you know what? It's impossible for anybody but you. I'm sure that you're going to... And then he, you know, did chamber, knocked it out of the 
park. But then he, you know, I think I came up with uh, Mondo and I came up with uh, Penance. And then he called me, oh, and I came up with Husk, because that was, like, really gross. And then I, uh, he called me up and he's like, what about a character who uh, has six more six more feet of skin than they need? And I'm like, that is so weird. And so that became skin. And then uh, he also wanted to do um, uh, M as like this kind of really secure, cute, uh, almost Wonder Woman character. And I was like, okay, that's fine, except she's made of two people, and one of them is other twins, and one is autistic, and, and so she keeps, like, fading in and out, and no one knows why. She's, like, perfect, except for these times when she just checks out completely. So so it became a very organic, uh, you know, creation and relationship between the two of us. So, so I'm not sure that answers your question. No, no, it does. Um, what... Um... What led to your departure from Generation X? Because I think you wrote the first, you know, two or so years. What led you to leave the book? Uh, I think I got, I think I was doing both X-Men books at the time. They asked me to do both. And so I think I was, again, this is a long time ago, but I think that's what happened. You were just, uh, so I wrapped that up, hoping that, uh, I mean, I kind of, uh, I think if I had known then what I knew now, and knew what happened to those characters, I probably would have stayed with them longer. So, are there any things that you wish you could have done with Generation X that you didn't get a chance to before you left and didn't have a chance to go back to them? Mm, mm, I'd have to say no. Um, yeah, I, I wish I had a better answer, but I really don't know. You know, like, that's okay. I probably would have kept them alive. <laughs> yeah, well, and, that that would have been a good idea. There's a lot of there are a lot of people who really enjoyed those characters. I'm surprised that they haven't made more of a resurgence. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly, certainly Emma, uh, you know, found a way. Yeah, absolutely, she did. But Banshee's dead. What? He's been dead for like a decade now. What? <laughs> when did that happen? The yeah. Won't bring back. <clears throat> I, I was I was actually really liked your take on Banshee is. Because it, it felt very organic from who the character was previous and a kind of a natural outgrowth of where he would eventually go. Because he was always the elder statesman for as long as he was ever on the X-Men. Like, he was always the oldest one. Well, besides, I guess, Wolverine, but he was never ridden that way. Uh, switching gears a little, um, I know that you're... This might be a question of, you know, what, what your name is on and how much work you actually ended up doing on it. Um, I know that your your name is at least on the Heroes Are Born versions of, I guess, um, Fantastic Four and Iron Man in the first six issues or so. What was your level of involvement with those books? Um, I think I only did one issue of Fantastic Four, and uh, I'm pretty sure I only did one issue. And uh, But, um, you know, I wrote uh, every word of... Uh, the first six issues of Iron Man, and then I think Jeff Loeb took over. Okay. So, um, but it was funny because I thought it was—I thought I was one of the few people at the company who thought it was a great idea to do Heroes Reborn, and I volunteered right away to write for the books. Um, because again, I think it just—you know—the industry needs to keep moving forward, and you know. Uh, but I—it's uh, funny if you read. Um, if you go back and you read the first, if you read the six issues, every line of 
dialogue on the first page is uh, kind of a slam at uh, kind, of, kind of a slam at the people at Marvel that were being uh, stodgy. Like I remember the first line of like a thing shows up, and he's like, "All right, let's try this again and make it better." Or something. It's like, you know, there are all these lines, you know, that I was constantly tweaking the people at Marvel. I'm gonna have to go back and read that. <laughs> Yeah, there's stuff like that. Was... Along the same lines, you um, you were writing when the heroes eventually returned from the Heroes Reborn universe. You were writing Fantastic Four for a bit, but then that kind of seemed to end very abruptly as well. <laughs> yeah, I um, I had a contract that was uh, about ten months away from being done, and I made some ridiculous. Uh, offer and I was like no I'm not going to do it anymore and I said so when the contract's up I'm just going to go and you're like well if you're going to go anyway then we want to put the uh, Fantastic Four into somebody else's hands because you're just going to leave and I said well I'm not going to leave for another 10 months that'll give me a year's worth of stories but so they're like no we're going to you're not going to do Fantastic Four anymore so I said okay Um, and so I ended with three and then I think four or five and six, my name had to stay on it because of solicits, but I didn't really have anything to do with it. Interesting. That's just, again, this is the but type the of... The first three issues were pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I always I was liked those first few issues. They were, they were a lot of fun, because it was just nice to see the FF back. You know what's funny, too, is that, like, you know, when I was reading the X-Men, it was, like, this kind of, like, Shakespearean, Claremontian, you know, adventure... And then when I wrote Iron Man, everybody's like, oh, Labdos is going to make Iron Man like the event, like X-Men. And it was nothing like the X-Men. It, was, you know, it may have been the first time that um, Tony Stark was a colossal dick, you know, and which I thought was right at the time. But yeah, then when I wrote the Fantastic Four, everybody's like, oh, he's going to make it like the X-Men. And it wasn't really like, you know, and it's just so funny because I really do um, try to look at each book and make it its own thing, whether it's, you know, you know, word balloons or captions or the tone or, you know, it's like right now I'm doing, a, well, right, right now, right, you know, but when I was doing um, Superman, I had uh, the captions and the thought balloons and people were like, you know, Rob Doe's just doing his retro crap, he doesn't even know how to write a comic book and blah, 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 blah. And then I looked at the first six issues of Wildcats, uh, where there was no sound effects and no thought balloons and no... Uh, captions except for location captions, you know. And that was 20 years ago, and now it's, you know, everybody does it. I mean, you know, certainly, Grant, I mean, uh, Alan did it with uh, Watchmen, so it's not like I'm inventing anything new, but it was, uh, you know, it was just, back then, that's what Hellcats was, and, you know, when I was asked to do thought balloons on Superman, I tried to make it feel like, you know, that was its own book. So, but again, it's, um, you know, I don't want you to think I lie awake at night afraid that people think I'm a hack, but it just does make me laugh that, you know, like, I do make, I don't know, I do make the books different from each other. So, um, Just a, a general question for your tenure doing books for Marvel. Who were some of your favorite artists that you did collaborations with? Um, George Tuska was one of them. Uh, 
certainly Joe Madera, Chris Pacella, John Romita Jr. I mean, you know, I, I got like the creme de la creme, so I couldn't, uh, Jan Jurisma was awesome. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know, I got to work with everybody, Jay Lee, you know. When I found uh, Jay and I put him on uh, Marvel House Presents after uh, the B story after Rob Lifeland left, I had found Jay at a comic book convention in New York and he had uh, come up with a bunch of loose leaf papers and some sketches. And none of the editors would even look at him because it's like, you know, he didn't even have a sketchbook. He had just had like loose leaf paper. And I was like, this kid is good. And so I gave him a plot and I said, um, are you going out with your friends tonight? And he's like, yeah. I said, well, don't go out with your friends. Do this plot so I can tell how much, how well you can draw. And so he uh, came back the next day with like 13 pages broken down, which is the fastest Jay Lee has ever worked before or since. Um, <laughs> but he, uh, when Rob left, eventually I was able to convince Marvel to give him Beast uh, six parts of the eight part story but what happened was is Jay was only 17 at the time and you can't get hired for Marvel unless you're 18 so I had to wait another three months before he could get started drawing it so it's pretty fun but, um, so yeah so I'd like to in fact there was a kid that I used to uh, take his art around because he couldn't get into DC so I took his art and I would show it to the editors at DC and they'd be like well, you know, he's good, but look at his, uh, the way he draws the Superman's cape. That's not how a cape folds, and so blah, blah, blah. But that kid was uh, Joe Casada. so. Um, but so, yes, I've got to work with everybody, so I couldn't really. Uh, one thing I guess I want to ask is what, um, obviously, you were, you know, a, a big part of you're, you're doing a lot in the new 52 when it launched with doing three titles at, at the beginning what kind of brought you over to dc to kind of get involved because you i mean there hadn't been a lot of mainstream comic work in the in the interim i don't believe no there, well i mean i had done a, i had been doing a, a bunch of stuff for idw and dark horse and uh paper cuts and a bunch of other companies but it was uh so i um uh, essentially, I just got a. I was um, I was in California and I got a text from Fabian saying, uh, "When are you going to start writing Batman?" And I'm like, "What?" And he said, "Bob Harris just took over from uh, as editor in chief, so you're going to call. I'm, I'm sure you're going to be writing Batman soon." And I said, "Well," I said, "Honestly, I've been out of this, and so many people have uh, had not returned my call over the years." And I was like, "I." You know, if Bob was gonna suggest I work for him, that would be awesome. But I didn't expect it because by that point, you know, nobody I had thought was uh, nobody I had thought would uh, I had made a connection with really had come uh, through, and so I uh, sent Bob a text. I said, "Hey, congratulations!" Da, da, da. And Really, that was the last I thought I was going to hear from him. And uh, I got taken out and asked to uh, write uh, Fathom for Aspen Comics. 
and I was doing that for a few issues, and then uh, it was right around Christmas time, and Bob invited me to his Christmas party, and I was like, yeah, I mean, I was, it was like Friday night, I was in the Aspen offices, and J.T. Corlo and I were talking about, should I go, should I not go, should I go, should I not go, and I'm like, uh, I can't go, so I texted Bob on Sunday, and I said, I'm oh, sorry, I missed your thing, and he's like, well, you're coming into New York for Christmas, right? And I said, yeah, he goes, let's meet for lunch on uh, Monday, so, or Tuesday, so I said, okay. And I thought we were just going to have lunch, and then uh, I get on the elevator, and Jim Lee gets on the elevator. I go, oh, and here's you, Bob. He goes, I know, we're going to lunch together. I go, oh, we're going together? He's like, yeah. So I went out to lunch, and then we talked for about 10 minutes, and Bob cannot abide small talk, and so after 10 minutes, he like pushes his chair away from the table and goes, we want you to come here for D.C., what do you want to work on? And so six months go by of uh, me talking about working on Titans, and I did not know at the time, and no one knew at the time, that they were going to be canceling the books and starting over. So for six months, I was working for D.C., but I wasn't really working for D.C. because I wasn't doing anything. But, uh, but then in San Diego, Bob... Uh, I had to sign an NDA and we go to lunch and Bob's like, yeah, we're uh, canceling all the books and starting over. I'm like, what? So, um, so that's how I got involved with that. The idea of, of them canceling everything and kind of restarting, was that exciting or daunting to you as a, as a writer? Oh, I thought it was really, really awesome. Um, you know, it's funny because you can see that there's like two definite camps in DC about, you know, people that wanted it to stay the same and people that wanted to change it. And I was all in on the change and, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, the first draft of uh, Teen Titans that I wrote felt like the 101st issue of Teen Titans because the group had, uh, the book had ended on 100 and I had written it like, okay, it's been six months we're back together what are we going to do with our lives and blah blah and I turned in the whole script and they're like no this is exactly what we don't want we want it to feel like a page one uh, you're getting involved with Titans from page one and so when I did that I knew that I was you know pissing off a tremendous amount of people who you know had been invested in uh, Teen Titans but I also knew that you know that was the assignment was to uh, you know recreate it from scratch so you know that's what I did and so it was fun I mean it wasn't fun in the sense that you know uh, it annoyed people but it was fun that uh, it was fun with regards to I mean obviously so you, you started with three books uh, you wrote Superman as well uh, you mentioned before about the idea of kind of making books have their own identity how would you what what did you try to kind of give each title to kind of make it different or to make it stand out or to give it a, that that further sense of identity? Not just that it has different characters, but that it feels like a different type of book. Well, like Superboy, for example, was very dark in the beginning, and I really wanted to examine like almost this sociopathic clean slate. Um, and the idea was not so much that he was going to become Superman but that he could become anything. And, you know, so that was kind of a darker book. And with uh, Teen Titans, I really wanted to push the fact that they were in over their heads. Um, because to me, it's like, 
to me, the difference between the Justice League and Teen Titans is, you know, the Teen Titans should not really know what they're doing. If the Teen Titans were as good as the Justice League, then, you know, you should call it Justice League because, um, or it didn't, wouldn't matter who you call um, And so to me, I really wanted to write a bunch of characters that were in over their heads and kind of uh, coming together. You even see it in the very first time we saw uh, uh, Bart where he like, you know accidentally blew up that mansion that was on fire mm-hmm. right in Westchester um, oh, wait a minute uh, um, <laughs> and so uh, so that was really what I wanted to uh, do and then in Red and the Outlaws Red and the Outlaws was you know Butch Cassian and Sundance Kid the movie where you them as bad and they had this kind of girl that was uh, sort of caught between them, but not really. Uh, and it was funny because at one point, uh, Dan was fond of saying that he didn't think Red and the Outlaws would last more than six issues. Um, but when we, uh, after the book came out, we were, I forget where we were, but he was, yeah, it was kind of crazy because you took Titans, about a group of characters that knew each other for the whole lives, and you made it so that they didn't know each other at all. And then you took Red and the Outlaws, and you took a bunch of characters that had never really been together, and suddenly you're acting like they've been together in their own lives. So it's, you know, they're like two completely different, you know, they were just two different characters. Um, I mean, two different uh, types of books going in two different directions. Um, and then when I took on Superman, like, you know, I'll tell you, like, when I hear people talk about Superman in interviews, and they're like, you know, Superman always does the right thing. Like, like, who wants to read about, you know, a character that always does the right thing, that always saves the day, that, you know, doesn't get angry, that's, you know. And so to me, I was determined to make a Superman who, you know, would read Lois's text because he could, you know, not, not because it's unethical or whatever, but because he lives in a world with different rules than you and I have, and for him to try to pretend that he lives in that world is silly so um so i wanted to make a, a you know a superman who wasn't always right and you know had a temper did things or was impulsive and so um you know as it turns out not as many people were interested as i was <laughs> <laughs> that's too bad because i feel like that fits this version of superman more than it would any other version like this version of superman making him feel younger, a little bit more brash since the beginning, I feel like that take is more appropriate because he's not the Superman we had before the New 52 started. Like, he's not the, the same Boy Scout he used to be. That's I, If I always thought that was kind of the point of doing the New 52 was to have a younger, slightly brasher Superman who wasn't perfect. And I think your version of, of Superman definitely played into that which I thought was the point, and it's interesting that people didn't want that, but that's kind of what DC's been trying to give them anyway. Yeah. Uh, what uh, what led to your departure from Superman? I mean, you weren't on it too long. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't really know. I just know that uh, you know, they offered it to, to John Romita Jr., and I guess he wanted to work with Jeff, and so that was that. So, now, over the past over the past few years, you've used, you've worked with uh, Kenneth Rockefeller a few times. Um, are you planning to collaborate again at any time in the near future? Or 
Um, I would always like to, but I'm not really, uh, I don't really, I haven't spoken to him lately, so. Mm. I know they're pretty happy with him on Titan, so. Now, with Convergence happening, there's a lot of things I want to ask you about Convergence, but one thing about Red Hood and the Outlaws, so it's being, I guess, retooled as Red Hood and Arsenal, um, what kind of brought about that change? I... I felt that when Red Hood and the Outlaws came out, it broke a bunch of rules and a bunch of templates, and so I felt that if I was going to do it again, it wouldn't make sense to do it without uh, breaking some eggs, and so I felt the way to do that was to not do, you know, that same trio, but to do a buddy book, because, you know, I don't really think that DC has one that I can think of, can you? No, not at the moment. Um... Yeah, there's, I don't think there's anything that exists at the moment that kind of fits that criteria. So, so far we've talked a little bit about the past, we've talked about the present. Let's look a little bit towards the future. So, in the upcoming months, obviously you're part of the big Convergence event. What can you tease or say how you kind of got involved with Convergence? Um, I don't really remember how I, how I wound up getting involved. I was just... Uh... You know, that's a good question. I don't, I don't remember how I got involved. Um... Yeah, I'm kind of blanking. I know it had it must have had to do with Dan, and I don't think Marie Jabins was around. I mean, she was around, but I don't think she was actively involved in it at that time. I don't really remember. That would be a good. Uh, I bet I should. I should work on a better answer because I know there are going to be interviews coming up to promote it. So you have done me a great service by uh, making me think I have to come up with something interesting to say in the next. <laughs> next week or so. Well, I'm glad I could help. <laughs> um, so now you're, are you a co-plotter or what's your, your kind of your role on the main series? Um, I, uh, yeah, I kind of, I mean, I kind of broke down the initial story in nine parts to, uh, you know, kind of a soup to nuts thing, but uh, then Jeff took it and, uh, you know, polished it and abbreviated it and moved it in different directions. And then, uh, then it fell on me to, uh, come back and, you know, it's kind of at this point, it's kind of hard to say where, uh, Jeff's work begins and mine ends and mine ends and his begins. It's kind of, a uh, you know. A question about that then, uh, has it been more like kind of, as you kind of describe it, almost like taking shifts on it, or has it at times been more collaborative, like kind of talking it over as you're kind of reworking and, and polishing different uh, elements? Oddly enough, we never, ever, ever speak. It's all done. Uh, we don't we don't speak. We don't write. We just kind of uh, see each other's work and go from there. You know, we don't, uh, we don't, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting uh, collaboration. It's uh I mean, I met him once for about 20 minutes in uh, at the Burbank Summit. But other than that, no, we don't uh, we don't really discuss things. So I guess it kind of gets more quarterback through the editor almost. Uh, yeah, yeah. Interesting. And now I guess there's, there's... Um, you know people look at a, like one of the greatest screenplays of all time, uh, Casablanca. You know, like it's funny because in comic books you hear a lot of writers complaining about you know editorial interference or you know 
things like that. And when you look at a script like uh, the script of Casablanca, it was originally, from my understanding, it was one of those rare movies where the movie was actually started before they had a finished script. And apparently the writer or the uh, producers on it, the studio, had two, I think maybe even three different teams working on the scripts independent of each other. So one guy would, you know, one team would write a script and the other team would rewrite their work. And then the third team would come and rewrite while they were shooting this movie. I mean, it's, it's pretty astounding when you think about the fact that, you know, the movie was so well done and gave us such amazing lines. So, so sometimes, you know, the, uh, I don't want to say chaos of create of the creative process, but sometimes the, uh, just the creative process itself can, uh, you know, surprise you and not, you know, I, I wouldn't think that two guys working on the same story and not being in contact with each other would work, but it seems to. So Now, has it been pretty, um, I guess, exciting to work on like such a, a big event? I mean, this is, they're, they're putting a lot on Convergence and you're doing the main miniseries that kind of runs throughout the entire event. So what is that like to be involved in something that is being heavily promoted and is kind of the backbone of two months worth of releases? I'm sorry, say that again? Well, just to be able to, like, what is it like to be working on the main, like the main book of such a, you know, a big, honestly, like, honestly, sometimes I kind of feel like, uh, you know, uh, Ben Franklin, uh, trying to mail a letter, you know, like, People will look, you know, people look at Bell, uh, you know, Ben Franklin was the father of the United States Postal Service, as you know, or you might not know because you're from Canada, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but I kind of feel like at this point, you know, having been the, you know, the grandfather of, uh, I, sometimes I feel like the founding father of uh, massive uh, crossovers. I mean, once you've done uh, Age of Apocalypse, you know, this is, uh, I mean, this is certainly fun, but I, I don't find it, you know, I don't find any particularly, you know, great weight on my shoulders or uh, a particular sense of awe at the uh, responsibilities inherent in writing this particular story. Okay. Um, I don't, I don't know how much you can tell us, but so far like what are the, some of the characters you're most enjoying writing in Convergence I mean obviously it could be spoilers depending on which characters they are but uh, well one of my favorites has been Dick Grayson I really like I've never um, you know this is Earth 2 Dick Grayson and I have uh, I haven't really gotten to write that yeah you know, I've certainly done a lot of work with Jason and I've done a lot of work with uh, Tim Drake so to be able to um write such an extended story with a Grayson, even though it's not necessarily the one we're used to. It's kind of, uh, it's been fun. So this is going to be a a very kind of comic nerdy question, but that's the, the old school earth Two Dick Grayson, not the newer version that we've seen in earth two in the last few years. Uh, it is the second one. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The earth two one. Okay. And any other particular characters that are, are are fun or maybe even a challenge to write in the in in the big crossover event? Um, I really like uh, 
what's his name? Uh, Jeff, uh, not Jeff, um, Jay Garrett, Flash. It's been fun. Um, you know, and I don't know if he's necessarily as funny as the other guys in the, uh, you know, the other Flashes, you know, uh, Kid Flash is always, is always a blaster, right? Um, so, but I do find, uh, you know, I, I'll be honest, I'm not the biggest fan of, uh, of, uh, speedsters, not because, uh, mostly because, to me, I find them very hard to write because in one scene, they race around the planet and pick up loose change, you know, in uh, couch cushions across the world and come back and, you know, count it out and have it sorted in those paper rolls. <laughs> um, and then in the next scene, it's like, you know, somebody puts a gun to the uh, hostage's head and they're like, you take one step forward and I'm going to, you know, and, and technically they should be in a jail cell processed, you know, and their um, mugshot's still developing by the time they finish their sentence. But, you know, for the sake of the plot, you know, you kind of, I, 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 it seems to me in the past, I've always looked at some, I always looked at some, I've looked at some stories and, you know, you realize that the writer is changing up their powers based on what they need to accomplish for that story. And so, uh, you know, particularly with the speedster, that's really hard. So when I write them, I always feel kind of challenged by them. But uh, in this case, Flash has been, you know, I just like his sense of, uh, he's the youngest, he appears to be the youngest one on the team. And he seems to be having the most, uh, I don't want to say fun because of the stakes that are being played out in the story, but he certainly seems to be the most uh, at ease with his role as a hero. So, hmm. uh, Another question about, I guess, the kind of formation of Convergence as an event. I mean, when you came on board, was the idea, kind of the concept of Convergence already kind of there, or did you help kind of refine like the villain and how I it would play? I would say that I, I was a refiner. Dan uh, Didio pretty much had... Uh, the basic, uh, more than the basic, he had the he had the story uh, with the beginning, middle, and end kind of uh, sorted out already. So, so it's really just my job to, uh, you know, at least in the beginning, it was more my job was more of a mechanical, almost tradesmith uh, aspect in the sense that you know you had the story, but then you needed to break the story out into issues. Uh, what was going to be the um, opening scene, what was going to be the cliffhanger each issue, what was going to be the, you know, uh, emotional core of each issue that would drive the artwork for the covers and, you know, on and on. So so I think at least initially it was my, that was my uh, involvement. Okay. Now, changing gears slightly, you're, I, I believe you're going to also going to be writing one of the Convergence miniseries, the Blue Beetle one, correct? Yes. Now, how did that come about? Like, were you kind of given an option of one of the different characters they wanted the spotlight, or was that kind of your choice? Or uh, it was my choice in the sense that I'd heard that the uh, you know I call them the hub city heroes that were uh, were going to be available, and so I uh, when they were um, talking to different 
artists uh, artists and writers to work on the books, I had sent an email to Bob and Dan saying, uh, I'd really like you to keep me in mind for uh, Blue Beetle and and because uh, I'm a big fan of the Charlton Heroes. And so I was actually meeting with Dan about the uh, convergence. It was called Blood Moon at the time, but I was meeting with him and uh, I the night before I had made up a t-shirt with, uh, out of an ad of the old Charlton heroes. And I wore the t-shirt to the meeting. I'm like, Oh, this old thing. Yeah. I love, uh, I love, uh, the Charlton heroes. So, um, so it sealed the deal, but I, uh, I still wear the t-shirt. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Now, um, of the Charlton heroes was, is it as much fun to write as you were hoping it would be? Like, being able to use those characters? Yeah, well, you know, what's funny is, is they uh, said the, you know, they kind of spelled out kind of a apocalyptic uh, worldview, not quite Mad Max, but certainly like a darker worldview that these stories were going to be uh, involved in because, you know, an entire city has been held captive for a year and the, uh, you know, the characters don't have their powers and societies in some of these cities has broken down. And, and so I wrote a pretty, uh, you know, really pretty dark opening between, it was kind of like Les Mis related where it was the revolution up against the um, people with power and it ended in this bloody street massacre. Um, and then the characters reacted accordingly. And then in the second issue, I wrote you know, an equally dark, uh, resolution. And they were like, you know what? Um, this is blue beetle. So it should be like a little bouncy and fun and try to make it like bouncier and fun. Like, you know, like blue beetle. And I'm like, okay. So I switched gears and I made the second part, you know, bouncy and fun. And about two or three weeks ago, they came to me and they said, do you want to make any changes on one based on what you've done with two? And I'm like, you know, actually, I kind of don't. It's kind of fascinating to <laughs> have this like, really dark opening story and then following up with this, you know, lighter, you know, I mean, it kind of feels kind of schizophrenic to me, but <laughs> I'm interested to see how, uh, you know, what people think. So. Very interesting. Um, now, moving on, well, do you have any kind of last thoughts about Convergence you want to tease us with before we talk about Red Hood and uh, Arsenal? Um, not that I can think of. Okay. But you know, it's funny. You know, it's funny is uh, it's funny because I keep getting these emails from uh, the front office saying, you know, you got to do this interview and that interview, and you know, will you do an interview here for Blue Beetle or here for Convergence? And I pretty much said no. I just, you know, like. I'm kind of working on this stuff right now, so I uh, have said no. So this is really technically my first Convergence-related interview, and it makes making me realize how uh, more I need to polish if I am going to be doing more. Or <laughs> this could wind up being an exclusive. Da -da -da -da. <laughs> well, we appreciate the exclusive here at Comic Shenanigans for the big 250. Um, so, 
So let's talk about uh, Red Hood and Arsenal. You mentioned uh, you, you mentioned earlier in the in the episode that um, you know that you were you know kind of pitching something that would that people were a little shocked about for the I guess the opening maybe a couple issues and that they're afraid of a, a Starfire situation happening again. Is there any more you can kind of tease us with um, what you're going to do with that buddy comedy book? Well, you know, it's funny. Is I, got a, I got a handful of notes in the time that we talked about it, and they uh, broke the first issue up into three parts. And the three, first part was the most was the one that I thought they would be the most wired about. They had indicated they were going to be. Uh, but, and then when I got the notes for the second and third... Uh, or when I got the notes for the whole piece, it turns out that they really uh, didn't even mention the first part, and their problems with it were in the second and third parts of the plot. So, um, and you know, it's funny because, like, I'll tell you, I don't know when this comes out per se, but you know, it'd be interesting for people who want to follow along, or, or you know, um, but what I did was to have on the last page of the story you know there's a few hints here and there but on the last page of the story um the last page of the story uh roy and jason are together and roy's mother shows up and there's the last page of roy like you know, they're in the middle of something and he just turns, he's like, mom. And it's, you know, like they're saying, you know, the notes that I got were, he looks at nobody's going to care about this. This isn't going to like drive sales into the next issue. This isn't, uh, you know, it has to be something big and dramatic. And, and I said, you know, honestly, I said, I think that people that follow Red Hood and the Outlaws are the type of people who are going to look at Red Hood and Arsenal and expect something different. You know, they don't, want uh, they don't want to end on you know the Joker jumping out of a cabinet and they don't want to end with you know uh, you know the Justice League showing up and be like we're going to help you know like I don't think they need those type of uh, events I think you know to me it's such a violent uh, there's so much violence going on in this first issue that the fact that you end it on Roy uh, seeing his mother again after a while, I think is, you know, I, I personally find it fun and off-center and unexpected. Uh, and to me, that's, you know, people again, people that read Red Heart and Arsenal are going to be expecting the unexpected, as it were. Hmm. So, um, so, so that's just kind of interesting. Between the two, who do you think is your? Do you prefer to write more? Do you prefer Roy or Jason? Oh, I don't know. That would be like you know. Do you prefer peanut butter or jelly? You know, like if you had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and somebody said, "We're going to take away one or the other," you'd go, um, "Hmm." You know, I don't know that a peanut butter sandwich would taste any better than a jelly sandwich. Mm. So, um, but no, they're they're fun. I mean, I like. Uh, you know, to me, like, in the dynamic as it exists right now, you know, Roy is usually the one that is uh, uh, kind of willing to go farther with things, which is fun because 
Roy going farther pulls Jason out of his shell and conversely Jason who can be so uh, you know methodical and rational uh, you know when I say that here's a guy who like came back to life and planned, uh, planned and plotted the death of Batman and Joker through the rise of a criminal empire that he was building just for that purpose. So here's a guy who's very uh, focused, and uh, he invariably, even though he doesn't mean to and doesn't want to and has no intention of uh, being this in Jason's life, he kind of, uh, in Roy's life, but he kind of functions as an older brother who is uh, always trying to reel Roy in a little. So, um, so I, again, that that like dynamic specific to these two is what makes both of them so much fun to write together okay now this last question um is you kind of talked about it earlier but um with the new book being you know a buddy a buddy book between the two of them and no longer having starfire was that your idea to not have her in the cast anymore that eventually led to her having her own ongoing announced or was she always going to have a new ongoing and were you given the opportunity to work with the characters still at the same time uh, I um, I wanted uh, I had went to them and said let me do Red Hood as a separate book and Outlaws as the book and those would be my two books and they said no the heart of the series it, the heart of the why the reason why it works is because the dynamic between Jason and Roy so you, we can get rid of the Outlaws but you have to keep Roy in the book, and so I was like, okay, I can do, you know, essentially, they wanted, a, they wanted a buddy comedy, and I'm like, okay, I can do that, and I'm, you know, anybody that has uh, seen me work on a series for, you know, an extended length of time knows that I, you know, we talked about it earlier, knows that I like to break up, uh, you know, the group dynamics and you know, move characters in and move characters out. And so, uh, ultimately, I was fine with um, with uh, Starfire having a break from the team. I mean, I would have been okay with Roy having a break and bringing in, uh, you know, Rose Wilson. I always loved her as a character. Um, you know, there are, were a few uh, people that I had suggested for guest stars but it came down to they really wanted uh they really wanted roy as the you know the second half of the series so i will tell you something funny is um i told this this weekend at a convention is that uh when we um rado is what we call the series in uh when we're texting or you know emailing back and forth like uh, Red Hood and the Outlaws was always broken down as R H A T O Rado. Mm. So it'll be any page comes in, any script comes in, it's you know Rado thirty seven or you know Rado page six JPEG. Um, but I have taken, I, I've created the nickname for this series, and it's called Red Ars. <laughs> so everything is Red Ars one and Red Ars two, and so. <laughs> So the, the little victories. Absolutely. 
Uh, before we sign off, um, what uh, kind of do you want to give us any additional teases on what we can expect from Red Hood and Arsenal? Well, did we talk about Doomed at all? No, actually, we didn't. Oh, well, let's talk about Doomed. I don't know how we missed that. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> That's right. Doomed is really fun because I, uh, you know, like I'm, I always talk to DC about the fact that they have these huge events and then they don't necessarily. Uh, capitalize on them and you know doomed was such a success in the superman line it you know went to second printing for all the books for what i believe was the first time in the new 52 and so i was like why 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 should we leave doomed on the table and not do something with the idea and so i you know i was always a big fan of the you know the original Peter Parker books where, you know, it was the youngish, uh, you know, younger kid whose life is complicated by his powers. Um, DC, for the most part, really, uh, you know, their lives don't get complicated by their powers. You know, like Flash got power, you know, Barry Allen got powers and he was, uh, you know, even better forensic scientist because of it. Um, you know, uh, Hal's, you know, Hal got the Green Lantern ring. He went on to save the world. It didn't really impact on his, the rest of his life or career. And so I was thinking if I was going to get to do a new DC character, I wanted to, um, kind of like Chamber, you know, a guy who the first time he used his powers, it blew out his entire, you know, jaw and chest cavity. Mm -hmm. And, to me, the idea was, well, if I'm going to create a superhero, why not create a hero who, like, you know, is infected by the doomsday virus? So he's this horrific, six-foot-tall, you know, um, gas-spewing, uh, just, you know, you can't look at this character and not think monster. And so the idea is that here's a kid who really, really wants to help. He wants to do his best. And every time he shows up, people run away screaming. So he, you know, if there's a bank robber, he's like, well, I'll handle, you know, well, he can't even say I'll handle this because any time he speaks, it comes out as this like Godzilla screech. So he shows up to try to make things better. And invariably people are shooting at him or trying to, you know, run away with their lives or for their lives. And so um, it was just fun to kind of, look at the um to kind of create a young anti-hero and you know when i was doing um teen titans and even Superboy, uh especially in the new 52 you know i was asked to create those characters from scratch but um certainly the people who had loved those characters for all those years before that were then coming to Teen Titans and Superboy already resenting the fact that they were uh, reimagined from scratch. Uh, but with Doomed, it's fun because there are no preconceptions as to uh, who this character, who this particular character uh, has been in the past or will be in the future. So, um, so this is a really fun way for me to work on it like even when i did superman the first thing i did was have uh clark quit the daily planet because of his feelings about 
the modernization of the news delivery service. Um, and, you know, some people loved it, some people hated it, and now he seems to be back in his uh, free assigned cubicle. Hmm. Um, so, but this is a, you know, this is a fun way to be able to, you know, write a character and write part of the DC universe without uh, having the, uh, without having people come at it uh, differently. So, you know, come at it with a, a sense that, you know, this isn't the this isn't the ongoing doomsday <laughs> series that I wanted to read. Remember in the night? No, wait, there was no in the nineties. Um. So yeah, so I think that's going to be a lot of a lot of a lot of humor in the book. And I was also very lucky to get uh, Javier Fernandez. I forget how I just saw his stuff on Magneto and I saw him on Facebook and I was like, Oh my God, you're awesome! We should work together. And he's like, On what? And I said, I don't know. I'm I'm uh, doomed. He's like, What's that? And I'm like. Um, and so I told them, made up something and told them, and then, uh, here we are. So. Wow. It's, it's interesting that, that, uh, that's how you recruit, like you, when you told the story of how you got Chris Pachalo on Generation X, it kind of feels the same. You, you saw some art and you went after them. Yeah. And the thing is, is that like, you know, Javier, when you look at his art, you would never, uh, you don't think of him as a, as a comedic, um, guy. And he just sent me an email. He said, oh, my God, I read the first issue. I laughed so hard. I love this book. Oh, my God. But the thing is, is that it's not written as comedy. It's written funny, but within a dramatic world. So the idea is you get this really dark, interesting artist, and he's going to, you know, not be uh, having people slip on banana peels or anything artistically. But I think that that will be what will make... uh, make it so much fun it's like you know it's like you know uh, Kenneth Rockerford's Red Hood and the Outlaws it was beautiful to look at but conversely all the other things around them you know it was pretty horrific a lot of people were, you know were getting killed in really horrible ways and but because of the art you look at the art and you're, you're you know it kind of gives you the ability to write one story and then write another story. You know, first story you write, you write for the artist, and the artist draws that story. But then you're kind of given the chance to go in and uh, write a different story on top of that one, which is you know, which is really fun. Hmm. So. All right, can we look forward to any kind of familiar faces showing up in Doomed, or can we try? Um, to- yeah, right now there's a scene where he is going into his apartment. Um, because they're doing uh, um, roommate auditions, and he bumps into this uh, neighbor in the uh, lobby of the building. You know, the neighbor's polite. He's a nice guy, but he's just a little odd. He's a little, you know, he's kind of, lit, you know, kind of a hayseed, and you know, just hey, how are you doing? Have a nice day. Have a great day. And you know, uh, he looks at him, and he's like. He's a nice guy, but he's a lot. Of, he's kind of odd. He, you know, I see him leaving. I never see him come in. He's a writer. He makes his own hours. I don't, you know, and it turns out that is Clark Kent. And so the idea that, you know, you look at Clark like we know Clark. We know he's a superhero and that he, you know, is the world's greatest superhero. But for somebody to just bump into him on the street or like, what's it like to have Clark Kent as your 
neighbor, you know, is a different, uh, there's kind of a different point of view than, you know, you and I have about Clark. So, so that was, uh, one, um, that's one cameo in the first issue, but I will tell you that I don't, uh, if I can avoid it, I don't want to have, you know, Superman on the cover of issue two, and I would rather not have, you know, Lois Lane trying to find out his identity. Like, I, I think, uh, unless it's maybe because she wants to interview him or something. I mean, it's something different than, you know, I want to try to not go to those uh, metropolis places that we would expect, even though we... Uh, uh, even though the series does take place in Metropolis, which is another scoop. Yeah, I, I don't think I knew that. <laughs> yeah. What's so. What's it like to use Metropolis as a as kind of a, as a backdrop and as a setting? Um. You know, it's kind of interesting to be honest because, like, you know, Metropolis has been around as far as Superman has been around, and you know, there may be some people who can tell you, you know. Oh yeah, Schuster Bridge connects, uh, you know, blah de blah with this section of town. But you know, the thing is, like when you look at New York and you think of the Twin Towers and Hell's Kitchen and uh, the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building and the Statue of Liberty and uh, Washington Square Park and Central Park and Times Square, it's like. You know, you can think of, you know, all, just hearing all those things, even though you're from Canada, you, you know, can imagine the city in your uh, head from all these iconic images. Whereas, you know, um, unfortunately, it seems that the only truly iconic image from Metropolis is the Daily Planet building. Um and so I really want to explore more of the neighborhoods. I mean, there's there's also suicide slums, which people, you know, most people remember. But other than that, I don't think there's a lot to Metropolis that uh, we have seen before, and or at least as um, as iconic as uh, many other cities. So. Uh, Maybe we'll, hopefully we'll see we'll get to know more of Metropolis through this series. So, okay. Um, and any last any last thoughts you want to tantalize uh, my listeners with? Um, no, I would get in so much trouble with uh, Tumblr if I tried to tantalize anyone. So I am going to <laughs> refrain because I know how upset they get whenever I attempt to tantalize. So. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, 250th episode. We really appreciate your time and uh, your insights and, and some of the scoops you've given us. All right. Well, just pencil me in for the uh, 500th episode. I want to be on every 250 episodes. I think that can be arranged. And that'll be my thing. So how long did it take you to get to 250? Uh, two and a half years. Oh, okay. Good. Okay. I was thinking, 200, I was thinking another 250, I'd be like... So anyway, I was doing this thing with the comic, and uh, <laughs> it was a very good comic, and uh, who is this? You know, but um, I think I'll be okay in two and a half years. I think you'll be all right in two and a half years. <laughs> okay. All right. All right, Karen. Happy anniversary, uh, comic shenanigans. Thank you so much, Scott. All right, see you then.